There seems to be an extreme sport version of every sport and hobby in the world. And I found out this week that there's also an extreme sport of paintballing. I didn't know that. But I read an account by a father who went to his first um, X-ball paint tournament. And he was sitting in the stands and his 18-year-old son was playing. And five men on a team, fast action, paintball. You're supposed to shoot the other team with the paintball and you grab their flag. Ancient game, right? But there's a little bit of a twist in this one because as this father sat there, he said he got pretty indignant because the coaches on both teams were allowed to give counsel to their teams. The, 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 the people on both teams are hiding behind these different barricades and rocks and the coach on the other team can tell them where the other players are and give them guidance on their strategy of how to, to, to shoot all the people they need to shoot and to, and to grab the flag on the other side. And all of a sudden what he realized was there are people in the stands that were lying about the location of the other teammates. And he was getting indignant because his, his son's team was getting a little obliterated and the people in the stands were giving false information to them. And so afterward he said, that just didn't quite seem fair. And the son said, ah, that's just the way it goes. It's called counter-coaching. And that's just what happens. And what we have to do is we have to ignore all the counter-coaching and listen to the voice of our coach. And when we do that, we're okay, because our coach will never lie to us. And it was just all part of the game. You feel like that's what your life is like sometimes? There's constant counter-coaching going on in the world. Constant lies being spoken. Constant mistruths, half-truths being spoken. And in the midst of it, we, as believers, are trying to navigate our faith. To work out our salvation in fear and trembling, as Paul says. And yet there's all this counter-coaching coaching going on. Well, the challenge in the midst of that is simple for us, isn't it? Will you listen to the voice of your master or will you not? Will you be delivered from the situations in which you walk that are full of counter-coaching because you hear the voice of your master or be, and, and by faith you listen and obey that voice? Or do you get caught up in the ways of the world? The desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the desire for possession, the ways of the world, the wisdom of the world, rather than the wisdom from above. Hearing the voice that the sheep that are not Christ hear instead of Christ himself. So the challenge for us this morning and the challenge for the people of Jerusalem and Hezekiah in his day the challenge is, will you, by faith alone, be delivered by your God? Or will you listen to the counter-coaching of the enemy? And that's our challenge as well. Will we live a life encouraged by our text today? And when we finish this in two weeks in chapter 37, when we finish this, will we be living stronger lives of faith? Listening to the words of our master rather than the counter-coaching that's in the world. Turn to Isaiah, chapter 36. Now, my green sheet for this week stopped at the end of chapter 36, but I'm going to cheat. We're going to go on into 37 today. There's a more natural break after the first seven verses of 37, which I wasn't quite convinced of when I did my green sheet, but I was very quickly after that. So I didn't confuse all our Sunday school teachers, but we will go through verse 7 of chapter 36, or chapter 37 today. I'm not going to read it all together. We'll read it in sections. But the first thing I hope you see when we open up to chapter 36 is we have switched away from poetry. Now, we've been in poetry for so long, it may be a little weird to us to see historical narrative in front of us. And we look at things differently, don't we? Poetry is full of those couplets and triplets of giving us different ways of looking at things and, and heavy on metaphor, heavy on picture language to help us describe situations Historical narrative can have metaphor in it as well. We'll see that today. But historical narrative is just what it is, just what it says. It is a narration of something that has happened in history. 
And if you remember, back in chapter 7, we had, a, we had this section of historical narrative as well. And it is the front end of the bookend that we'll start today. From that section all the way through chapter 39 is the beginning and the end of this large section using the two kings of Israel, Ahaz and Hezekiah, as examples of what to do and what not to do. And Hezekiah has his what not to do as well, but he is going to respond by faith to his God in the same set of circumstances, attack from an enemy outside, and we have both this long section that, remember, has all the woes in the middle of it, has all the oracles to the nations in the middle of it, and all of those chapters have one basic purpose, don't they? Are you going to trust in God or trust in man? That's the primary purpose of all of those, and it comes to a head for us in chapters 36 and 37, and with a little bit of a reminder of Hezekiah's humanity in 38 and 39. So as we look at 36.1 to 37.7, we see three royal messages delivered as Sennacherib, king of Assyria, invades Judah. Three royal messages delivered as Sennacherib, king of Assyria, invades Judah. The first message starts right at the beginning of the chapter. Rabshakeh delivers a royal message from King Sennacherib. Now the first three verses, the, the people involved in this, the envoys have to gather, don't they? So in verses 1 through 3, the players kind of gather together before us. Look at your text, chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah... Now, let me just stop there, and if you've studied out of 2 Kings chapter 18 and 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and following, 18 and following, 32 and following, you know that if you looked up the, the, the ascension of these different kings, that you might find some confusion in there, and you might not be sure, well, what years are we talking about? Well, as you study that, just know that a lot of times when the Bible brings us uh, the different kings and their reigns, there are co-regency periods where a father and the son will co-reign for a season for different reasons. And I think we have that with Ahaz and Hezekiah. We have in, in 728, we have Ahaz taking over the kingship, but he's co-reigning now, or Hezekiah taking over his kingship, but he's co-reigning with Ahaz. So some of the dates are talking about that first date. Other dates that you see mentioned are talked about after Ahaz dies and Hezekiah is reigning by himself, which takes place about 715. And also, if you've studied this, you know you see a lot of dates that might be 715 slash 714, because we're not really sure whether we're talking about the, a full year of reign or from the year of ascension so in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, we're pretty, we are sure that this is 701 B.C. That's a historical marker for us, and the events surrounding this are in a historical presentation of what's going on around 701 B.C. So in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So here are the envoys gathering. Much historical information for us in this. Uh, Sennacherib is the king of, of Assyria. He takes over from Sargon II in 705. Now here's why that's important. Because when that change of power in Assyria happened, there was an instability in Assyrians' rule in the Assyrians' rule. And many of the nations took advantage of that instability because um, as, as Sennacherib had to keep control of his kingdom, his focus was more inward than outward. And so people rebelled against him. Now remember, back in chapter 7, what did Ahaz do with the king of Assyria at that time? 35 years before, turn back to chapter 7. Keep your finger in 36, but turn back to chapter 7 of Isaiah. Beginning in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, that's Hezekiah's daddy. In the day of a days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, 
Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shook before the wind. And Yahweh said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub, remember that these names of his, son, of his children, um, a remnant shall return is what the name of that child means. Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit on the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up and against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus, say, thus says the Lord Yahweh, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. Listen, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So it's a clear word from Yahweh to his king saying, Don't be afraid of these people. These are just humans. I'm your God. And he says very carefully, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. So you would think that the king, the king, God's king, would say, yes, Lord. But you know, as we went through, he did not say that. The Lord asked him to give a sign, and he got very pious. And he said, oh, I I wouldn't tempt my God by asking for a sign. And so what does God say? Over in chapter 8, he tells us that because of this action, there will be a Syrian invasion to the northern kingdom, but it would also reach into the southern kingdom. In chapter 8, verse 5, Yahweh spoke to me again, because the peop- this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flowed gently and rejoiced over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the, of the river, that is the Euphrates, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all the channels and go over all its banks, listen, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. That promise is being fulfilled when we get to Hezekiah in chapter 36. Because we know that of the 48 fortified cities, 46 of them are already under under the control of the king of Assyria. And back in chapter 36, turn back there if you're not there, we see that very clearly, not with the numbers, but the, the clarity that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, verse 1, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And at this point, 46 of the 48 are under his control. Lachish, which is 25 or 30 miles southwest, that is being under siege right as this takes place. And so it's about to be overtaken. The only thing left is is Jerusalem. And we have historical accounts. They're not biblical accounts, but they're historical accounts in the annals of the king of Sennacherib that tell us about this. And there's a, a, uh, I think it's a 60-foot relief that's found in the, in, the, uh, um, in the residence of Sennacherib in Babylon that has been found that gives the whole picture of the siege at Lachish. In those annals, we read these words. As for Hezekiah, the Judean, I beseech 46 of his fortified walled cities and surrounding smaller towns, which were without number, using packed down ramps and applying battering rams, infantry attacks by mines, breaches, and siege machines. I conquered them. I took out 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, cattle, and sheep without number, and counted them but spoil. But I left Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Now, that's not scripture, 
But that is the account of the king. And scripture, it is, it, he's clearly giving a picture of what's going on here in 701. Except it's not a whole picture, is it? Those kings never talked about their downfall. So all that Yahweh is getting ready to do is absent in that report. But all of this is a major battle in history. And the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem and their king are up to a test. Will they fail as Ahaz did? Or will they obey their God? That's what is before them. Now, we learn about King Hezekiah in several chapter, in several different places. In 2 Kings 18, we learn, I'm not going to have you turn there, but we learn this report about, about Hezekiah and his reign. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until these, those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtu, excuse me, Nehushten. He trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to Yahweh. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Now that little excerpt is important for us because... The writer of Kings gives a positive affirmation to Hezekiah's reign as one of the greatest kings in Israel. And yet, just a couple of verses later, we learn something that Isaiah doesn't tell us. Not important for Isaiah's account, but Hezekiah pays a tribute to Sennacherib in Assyria. 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of... No, 300 talents of gold and 30 talents of silver, I think is the way it was. So over 20 tons of of silver and over two tons of gold, he pays to him. He takes it off of the doors of the sanctuary and pays it to uh, Assyria, the king of Assyria, in an attempt to buy his protection. And then the king of Assyria invades anyway, not to be trusted. Now, there's much more we could say about this historical background. I'll let you read that yourself from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. But back in chapter 36 of Isaiah, we see these envoys that have gathered. And this is a, a, an important time. And it's an important test for God's people. And they gather at a specific place that is marked out by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, you know, we just read that in chapter 7. It's exactly the same place that Ahaz failed his challenge. So God is bringing us back to the same place so that we get the mirror image of what happens. And we're, we're waiting with bated breath to see if Hezekiah does something different than Ahaz. But also this is important because Hezekiah will do many upgrades to the water system. Remember, when we were back in chapter 7, we learned that um, Jerusalem's water supply was, it was open to attack. The way it was done, it was open to attack. And Hezekiah, one of his main engineering feats was to put that under, underground so that it wasn't as vulnerable to attack. At this point in the rain, we're seeing that they're meeting here and it has all kinds of symbolism. The most important is God has brought the, the people and his king back to the same spot. The most important image that we have. Verse 3, we meet the people. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Those are the people on King Hezekiah's side. And you remember in chapter 22, we already met um, two of these people already, didn't we? We already met Eliakim, and we already met Shebna, and their roles were reversed. Remember in chapter 2, Shebna, or chapter 22, Shebna was, was the usurper. He was the one who was, who was the leader in the household, the household manager who did things for his own glory, and God was having none of that. And he said, there will come a time where you will be stripped of that, and Eliakim will be put in your place. And so now later on, 701, 35 years later, or even more, less than 35 years from that point, we see that change has already happened. Now we have them in opposite offices. So these are representatives of both kings. On the uh, Assyrian side, we have the Rebshakeh, the third in command, 
So a very important person, uh, maybe means the cupbearer, um, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. He's dispatched by his king with a great army. Remember, they're tied up in Lachish right now. They're under siege. You know what that means in that time, right? They would cut off all supplies going in or out uh, of a city, and they would keep that for, for years if it, would take, if it would take that so the people inside would hit starvation mode and be without water and that they would give up without having to shed any blood by the attacking army. They would use siege engines, siege machines. And in Lake Lachish, you can still see, if you go search on Google this afternoon, I know all of you are going to do this. Go search on Google this afternoon for the siege at Lachish. And you will find pictures of, of what is left of the, the ramp that they built. Uh, three million stones that they put up to make a ramp up to this uh, elevated fortified city to bring their siege engine up, that, that big machine they built and ro- roll up to the top so they could um, take out the gate with that machine. You can still see the remnants of it. It's fascinating to look at. So all of that is the setting that we're in. So the envoy gathers. The message is given. This is Reb Shekah delivering a royal message, and he does it in two parts. Faith alone will not save you, is what I've called the first section. Verse 4, and the Reb Shekah said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Now there's his opening salvo, and that word trust is important. Seven times in the next several verses we're going to see that word trust. This is what the king of Assyria wants his henchmen to attack in the, in the, the people of Jerusalem and their king. Who are you trusting, and on what basis are you trusting? On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you trust that you have rebelled against me? Now, the rebellion was in 2 Kings 18, 7 and 8. Remember, I just read that. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. That was probably at the change of power at 705 between Sargon II and Sennacherib when things were really unstable and nations were taking their their shot at the, the reigning superpower of the day. And so he begins to try to shatter their trust And I think he says more than he ever intended to say when he said, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? Because it is merely the word of God and the truth of the word of God, the power of the word of God, the certainty of what God says that King Hezekiah must hold on to. Yes, he has history. He can remember other deliverances, but he is holding on to what God says. And that's immediately what's attacked at the beginning and he's saying, listen, you can't just talk your way through. You, you can't make alliances with other nations. You can't rely on the word of your God as a strategy and power for war. Verse 6, behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such, a, such is Pharaoh's king of Egypt to all who trust in him. Our fourth occurrence already of the word trust. Now, we know that there's been alliance with Egypt as well as Babylon. Remember, we've learned that already in the woe oracles. There was was two chapters of one woe that talked about woe to those who go down to Egypt. So we know this is happening. And listen to what the king of Assyria says. He's not telling them what God says. What does God say about trusting kings and nations? Don't do it. He's not saying that. He's saying don't trust that king and nation. And he says they're undependable. Here is, the, here is the king through his messenger who said, you pay me a tribute and I'll leave you alone, who is now on the door of the city. So who is not to be trusted? Just seeing the eye, with their own eyes of what's going on, then what this Rabshakeh says should be suspect to them already. But that's not what Rabshakeh thinks. Rabshakeh knows his history. Did you catch that when you were reading through this? He knows much about God's people. He uses their language, he uses their history and trying to break their trust in their own God. Verse 7, so you can't, you can't trust in this, this broken reed using that imagery of a reed as a staff that if you put your weight on it, it will snap because it's broken and it'll pierce you right in the hand. 
That's, that's this King Shabaka who we've met before, the Pharaoh Shabaka in Egypt. Can't trust him. But, the second way, if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now there he's doing a couple of things, isn't he? One thing, he's blaspheming God, isn't he? But the main thing he's doing, he's trying to stir up division in those people. Because we just read in chapter 18 of 2 Kings where this is exactly what Hezekiah did. He shut down all the places of false worship. Now, think of what division there might have been in the people for people who worshipped close to their home. And they weren't thinking they're in false worship. And Hezekiah came down and shut down all those high places. You think there might be somebody, some people in the area who were already prone to say, Listen, I don't like the fact that our king did that. Maybe this guy's right. So he's trying to stir up division, but he is also trying to take things that he knows to be true and make them against Yahweh instead of for Yahweh. So he's setting a a groundwork here that anyone with spiritual eyes should be able to see. Verse 8, come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. So don't bet on all these other things, bet on my king. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to on your part, to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you must trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? You hear what he's saying? I'll give you 2,000 horses. I'll give you a head start. Of course, you don't have 2,000 trained men to put on those horses, so it wouldn't do you any good. Because what? You're leaning on Egypt for their horses and chariots. And I already told you that they're like a bruised reed. They will fail you. So you're putting your trust in all of this? Just systematically trying to kick out all the things that they might have their trust in so that the Rabshakeh can get the people to turn to his king. I want you to notice so far, when the Rabshakeh talks about his king, he talks about him in, in grand terms. The great king, the king of Assyria. When he talks about Hezekiah, what's he say? Hezekiah doesn't even call him king. So even in his, in his underlying language, he's, he's already engaging in psyops, isn't he? Psychological operations to try to just make them feel insecure. You can't repulse even a single captain among the least of my master's servants because you are not equipped. Verse 10, moreover, is it without Yahweh that I have come up against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. Now there's where he hits the height of blasphemy, isn't he? Because is that a true statement? It is a true statement. God said he will whistle and the Assyrians will come and do his bidding. But then he said he would punish Assyria because they want to do it in a way harsher than he said. And they're taking the glory instead of him. Remember? And so now what's he doing here? He's taking the glory. Listen, you're you're upset that we are coming against you, but your God sent us, and you're trusting in him. So if you're weak of faith, sitting on the wall with the Jerusalem army, you could be by now thinking, man, maybe this guy's right. I do remember that Isaiah said that Yahweh was going to send this army toward us. Maybe this is his will. Maybe we shouldn't fight this because it's his will to do. He's just stirring it up. And in between the first and second half of his message, we have an interventional interlude. I'm calling it an interventional interlude because the leaders from Hezekiah's side are trying to dampen and stop the damage of the Rabshakeh's report. Look at verse 11 and 12. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic. For we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So Aramaic, that international language of of commerce and diplomacy that would have been used, the educated would have known it, but the people on the wall would not have known it. And so they said, talk to us in that language. We get that. We don't want them to hear all that you have to say. Well, you can imagine the Rabshakeh is not going to have this. Look what he says in verse 12. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? 
Now that's, that, that's a, a reference to what happens to the people in a siege when there's no food and there's no water and people start going crazy and doing crazy things. And your decision, Rabshakeh said, affects all those people on the wall because they're going to go down with you into that kind of punishment if we attack. And so he turns and he speaks to them in their own language. So we have the second part of the Rabshakeh's um, royal message beginning in verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. So there's your king. He's helpless. So don't let him deceive you. If he says he can deliver you, uh-uh. Don't believe him. Do not let Hezekiah make you Trust in Yahweh by saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So he's bold and he's blasphemy. Don't let Hezekiah tell you that he can deliver you. And don't even listen to him to say your God can deliver you. And he's going to build his case. A false case, but build his case. Look at verse 16. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you shall drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land that, that like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So here he's, he's had their history down pat. Here he has their language down pat. This, some of this is, is uh, covenant blessings language, is it not? This is the way it's described under Solomon's reign. Under Solomon's reign, it's such a prosperous reign that every man sits under his own vine and every man sits under his own fig tree. The same thing with the, the same kind of a quote in Micah chapter 4, verse 4, and Zechariah 3.16 for future covenant blessings. This is the way it's described for blessing. And so he's using the land, he's using the blessing of the land, saying, I'll give you the same thing. Just make your peace with me. And I hope you can see the horns. I hope you can see just the, the dripping evil coming off of the Rabshakeh because he's not to be trusted. And we know, because we are watching from a distance, we know what Yahweh is going to do. And we know what Yahweh has done in the past. The people here know what Yahweh has done in the past. Will they listen to him in the future? Or will they listen to this ramshackle group of underlings that the king has sent? Verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath? Where are the gods of, of, of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who is among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So what's he doing? He's saying, my king is God. And see, this was the mindset of the day, wasn't it not? Was it not? When one army would go up against another, one king against the other, if whatever king won could claim victory because their gods were more powerful than their gods. And that's what he's saying. I've won all these victories. I've sieged all these towns. Where are these gods of these places? They didn't stop me before. What makes you think your God will do that? And by now, we're sitting in the peanut gallery saying, he will do that. I know he'll do that. Aren't we, aren't we just prone to say that? Maybe you're not. Do you not trust in the Lord to provide for them at this time? Are we reading this story dispassionately? That we think, oh, it's just another Old Testament story, just another battle. Somebody's going to live. Somebody's going to die. King's going to come. King's going to go. Let's just get on with it. Because this message is for us. Because we suffer the same things, don't we? We suffer all that counter-coaching that throws out the wealth of the world, that throws out the prosperity of the world, throws out the wisdom of the world, throws out the joy of the world as if it's true, throws out these ideas that you should just be happy. You want to divorce your spouse? Just go ahead. Doesn't your God want you to be happy? Well, what do you have to say about any of all of this stuff that's going on in the, in the aberrant sexual realm in our culture today? What do you have to say about that? Your God's not stepping in and stopping that. If it's so bad, why in the world wouldn't your God step in and stop it? 
Evil is going on to more evil. Good is being called evil and evil is being called good. And that's the world we live in. We, we have our own Rabshakeh shouting to us on the wall saying, are you going to believe what your God says or are you going to believe your eyes? If I wasn't wise, would say some of the rulers, then what I was teaching and what I was doing, if it wasn't right to have all of this, this uh, critical theory in all of our government, in our, all of our classrooms, then why, wouldn't, why would it be working? It just keeps growing. You, you're in the minority. You, you're in the minority here. You, you, you just have to just realize that we are the wise ones. We are the ones that have the wisdom in this. And that's just in our culture. What about in your life? The economy is turning south. Your grocery bill is different than it was before, and your income probably isn't. Your 401k has taken a hit. Maybe you had investments that are completely gone now. Where is your trust? Is your trust in God, who has promised you your inheritance, who said that your glory is to be worshiping Father and Son in the New Jerusalem without sin, and that's where your eyes are set? You can't take all this stuff with you. Don't worry. Where is your focus? See, this is for us today, that we're walking in a world that constantly is shouting us with, at us with counter-coaching for our happiness, for our joy, for our sustenance. Sometimes we have to take stands that are a battle when if we keep our mouth shut, we think we'll be in peace. You ever been in that situation? Should I speak or should I not speak? This is a message for us. So we, in the peanut gallery, in the upper deck from this story, should be shouting at them, trust God, trust Yahweh. Don't do what your daddy did. Don't lead us down there because they're in this situation because Ahaz led them into be a vassal of Assyria. And Hezekiah has even furthered that by presenting his tribute of all that gold and silver. Well, the message is strong. The message can make the people on the wall panic. The message brings them to mourning. Look at Hezekiah delivering a royal message to Isaiah. It starts in verse 21 where Hezekiah of chapter 36, where Hezekiah, the, the, the men who are his envoys respond and bring the message back to Hezekiah. Verse 21. But they were silent and answered him not, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Now there's some hope, right? That's a wise thing. How many of you have entered into discussions where in the back of your mind you knew you should just keep quiet and not answer a fool in this folly? And once you do, they eat your lunch because they know their false material more than you know your true material. Or maybe you enter into a discussion that there is no way out of except to hang you up it's been orchestrated that way. That's what the Rabshakeh is doing. He is leaving no doubt that there is nowhere for you to turn except to my king. Nowhere else. And King Hezekiah in advance said, do not engage this person. So that's hopeful. Verse 22, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, that literally means the rememberer, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rapshakas. So they're broken. They're, they're mourning over this situation. They see it with their eyes, their physical eyes, they see no hope. But they're just the messengers. Chapter 37. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, that is their report, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And we should all be going, Hallelujah! Do you see this? His world around him is falling apart. And where does he go? He goes to pray. He goes to seek the Lord's wisdom. Not the wisdom of the world. Not anything but the Lord. He goes to the house of the Lord. And that's the opposite of what Ahaz did 35 years before. And he sent Eliakim, who is over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. 
So in other words, there is no strength to do anything. Even a child is about to be born. The woman dies before she can give birth because we, with our physical eyes, are hopeless. They've taken over all the other fortified cities. Lachish is about to fall. They're waiting outside Jerusalem. We have no hope. It may be that Yahweh, your God, will hear the words of the Rabshakeh whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the what kind of God? The living God. The living God. Not the dead gods. Not not the gods who were just mentioned in passing but never seen and never acting because they're not real. Not those, but the living God. Maybe your God will hear the words of the Rebshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that Yahweh your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. They have nowhere to go. You ever feel that way in your life? I just have nowhere to go. I have no hope left. If I look with my eyes, I can't even watch the news. I can't walk through the streets. I can't go to a public library. I can't go to a school board meeting. I can't do anything with being hammered by all of this evil. I've got nowhere else to go. But that's exactly where we should be as believers, is it not? We have no strength to do this on our own. This is God. This is God working in us to give us the sustenance and the courage and the strength and and the faith to be able to walk through the midst of this knowing that he's in control and that he will act according to his glory, according to his time. And we will see he will act. He will act against the king after he acts against their army. But this is the response of the king to go to the house of the Lord and then to send the prophet who is the, the mediator between the people and God and God and the people and says, They have been mocking our living God. Pray to him about what goes on next. So they have turned to the right place. They're not turning to their own strength. They're turning to the strength of God. So this is the royal message delivered from Hezekiah to Isaiah. The third royal message is Yahweh delivers a royal message to King Hezekiah. Verse 5 of chapter 37. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says Yahweh. Okay, so now we're listening, right? We've had earthly kings speaking. They have, they have created some havoc on the Assyrian side. The, the God side, the kings are beside themselves. They don't know what else to do. So they go to their strength. They go to they, their power. And now God, Yahweh, the one true living God who has been mocked, speaks to give the encouragement. Do not be afraid. And we see that all through Isaiah. We see that all through the scriptures, don't we? Fear not. That's the way we should live at all the times without being afraid. Because even if we're walking in physical danger, if we die, what happens? We're with the Lord. So even in the fear of death on this earth, the joy on the other side is worth it for us to be able to walk, being sustained by him in his strength for his glory. And so he's telling them, God speaks to his people who are afraid, who are undone. They're in sackcloth. They think they they have nothing left. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard. I want to put the emphasis there because I think that's the intention. They're just mere words. Don't worry about this. They're asking you if words alone will will save you. My words will because my words will always come true. My words will always go out and accomplish what I intend them to accomplish. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men, and I think that's a pejorative term, the lackeys, just they're of no consequence. Kind of like the way he talked about the kings of Judah and Assyria. You know, they're of no consequence. They're just young smoldering firebrands. Don't worry about them. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. There gives us God's view of what the Rabshakeh's words did. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And if you've read ahead in future chapters, you know that this will come true. We won't get there. We'll we'll get there when the scripture gets us there. But the Lord is like, don't be afraid of this person. I will take them away from you. 
They're camped outside your gate, but I will take them away from you. And when I take them away from you, I will take care of the king. And before he does that, he takes care of the whole army, doesn't he? And we'll learn about that all next week. This is the challenge. This is the test. Don't be afraid of this king. I'll defeat this king. Mere words, but they are Yahweh's words. And Hezekiah, on behalf of his people, have done the right thing. And when we're thinking about Ahaz in chapter 7 and following, we're relieved at this point. Because we see the glory of God. Ahaz did not. Hezekiah sees the desperation of his situation and the glory of God in the midst of it. And he says, we'll walk through with God's strength. And so this is the message. It's the challenge to us today. We don't have the Assyrian army sitting on our doorstep, right? But we do have counter-coaching going on it all the time. And God is active in us. When people mock God by their words or by their actions, God is not just like deaf and doesn't hear them or doesn't care. All of the sin in the world will be dealt with, will it not? It will be dealt with in one of two places. It will be dealt with on the day of judgment with people standing on their own. And everyone who mocks God will stand there and their righteousness will not save them. Or it's been dealt with on the cross with Christ himself. And when he dealt with it on the cross, he dealt with it fully and finally and completely. Look back, if you will, at verse 4. Therefore, at the end of verse 4, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Now, when we hear that word in Isaiah, we are constantly rejoicing, are we not? There's always a remnant. And the remnant is not about the people. It's about the covenant faithfulness of their God. And how is that remnant used? That remnant is always, God is always going to provide the remnant because he's promised to do so. And the remnant, especially from Jerusalem, what, who comes from the remnant that comes from Judah? Christ himself, the Messiah. So for the remnant, because from the remnant comes the salvation that we long for. From the remnant comes the spiritual salvation that all of this physical salvation and deliverance points forward to. It's the Lion of Judah. It's the rightful heir to the throne of David. It is the promised seed from Genesis 3. It is the seed of Abraham. It is the prophet, priest, and king, all capital P's, who will come and live and die and be raised again for the sins of all who will believe. So if we're talking about salvation here for a physical salvation, it's always pointing forward to the spiritual salvation that comes from the remnant for the remnant. Because when Christ came, he lived the perfect life. He was always obedient. His death on the cross prophesied in the Old Testament, his resurrection, the ascension to the right hand of the Father, guarantees that those of us who are in Christ have the ability to walk in the midst of the counter-coaching, trusting in him, and most importantly, hearing his voice. Because we know the voice of our master, and he knows the voice of all the sheep. And so we have confidence to walk into this world because of Jesus. And Jesus is, when we read chapter 36 and chapter 37, and we're thinking about our own self, we're not relying on just the voice. We're relying on the fact that the voice has proceeded forth in the Christ who died for sin so that we might have eternal life. So where are you this morning? If you're one of those people who are constantly caught up in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of possessions. If you're one of those people that are constantly being caught up in what the world says will make you joyful, what the world says will make you happy, what the world says will be wise for you. If you're one of those people, check your heart this morning. Because if you're depending on your own wisdom on the day of judgment, Christ, if he has not died for your sin, then you will stand in judgment for your sin and you will not stand in that judgment. So you cannot just keep picking yourself up by the bootstraps and trying to do the right thing. You have got to hear the voice of the Lord and depend on his perfect and final work. And for those of us who are in Christ this morning, how easy is it to forget that we actually are strong because he is strong in us? That when we're working out our salvation in fear and trembling, one of our growth groups that we're a part of went through this verse the other night and just meditated on it for a while Um, Work out your salvation, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
And I think here's the, the, the net Bible captures what we're supposed to understand in this. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for the one bringing forth in you both desire and effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. So when we are living our life and walking in the world, ignoring the counterculture, the countercoaching and listening to the voice of our Savior, he is working in us putting forth in us the desire and the effort to crucify sin and to pursue Christ. And so we don't get caught up in what the world is trying to tell us. We don't even have to put our fingers in the ears. It just all sounds like blah, 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 blah. Wah, 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 wah. It's all it sounds like because we hear the voice of our Savior. And so we can endure anything. We can sit on the wall and look at the army and we can trust Yahweh that he will do what he says. We can live our life and look at the world around us and trust Christ to do what he promised to do because he loves us. And all that the Father has given to the Son, he will not lose any. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for these ideas that were spurred to think these righteous and holy thoughts that we are given from your scriptures according to your word. And we are encouraged that as we walk through this world, Father, you have a plan. You are sovereign. You are working your will and your way out every moment of every day. You never sleep. You never slumber. You are advancing your kingdom and you use us to do so. You've given us the the strength and the power and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change the world around us. And so we ask you, Father, to make us fearless, that when we're tempted to fear, that you overwhelm us with the bravery that comes only from you. When we're tempted to capitulate to the wisdom of the world, you remind us that the wisdom from above is where we keep our eyes focused. When we're tempted, Father, to get caught up in the riches and the wealth of the world, remind us that it all burns that we are to build the spiritual houses here. We, we are to build up spiritual treasure here in this, this world. When we're tempted, Father, to live in our own glory and that we make decisions of when to speak and when to act and what to do based on how we look and what people will think of us, please, Father, spare us of that sinfulness because it's not to us, O oh Lord, it is to you to receive the glory. So help us live in such a way, Father, that if no one knows our name, we die with the purpose. If no one ever hears of our life, we know that you are pleased if we live it to your glory. Do these things, Father, for your grace has overwhelmed us. Your grace, this scandalous grace that has rescued us from our sin, your grace drives us forward, Father. It drives us to be forgivers. It drives us to be those who pursue you instead of our own sin. All because you have set your affections upon your people. So help us, Father, to be more obedient to you so your gospel is advanced. The counter coaches are silenced and you get all the glory. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.